Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 116, and it's on timekeeping in medieval and Tudor England. But first, I have to tell you about my very important announcement on TudorCon. Yes, you heard that right. I'm organizing and hosting the world's first ever TudorCon in October of 2019. So that means just about 10 months from now, we will gather at a newly restored winery adjacent to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Um, It's close to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is about 60 miles east of Philadelphia. And we're going to have three days of merriment, learning, feasting, and entertainment. The weekend will kick off on Friday, the 18th of October, with a welcome party, with refreshments and period entertainment and games. Costumes are definitely encouraged for this. On Saturday, we're going to have a full day of learning from speakers. I'm still lining up the speakers. Um, And on Sunday morning, we're going to reconvene for a morning of talks, followed by a medieval feast in the feasting grounds of the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair with private entertainment. And then we'll have time to spend at the fair together before calling it a weekend. The goals of this event are, first and foremost, to bring together this amazing community from around the country and the world even, and have a weekend of social learning, new friendships, and bonding over our shared love of Tudor history. And second, to meet some of our favorite bloggers, authors, and podcasters. So tickets for TudorCon are available at TudorCon.info, T-U-D-O-R-C-O-N, TudorCon.info info, you can learn more about it. We only have 120 seats available because of the size of the space. And I've already sold over a third of them. So they will likely sell out. So if you think you'd like to come, you can get your ticket so you can reserve your spot and then you can have time to plan your trip later. So again, tutorcon.info to get these tickets. If you're on your phone right now, check it out while you're listening and come spend a weekend in October with me and 119 of your new best friends, and we will talk tutor all weekend long. So 
Now, telling time. I've said before that the aspect of the 16th century that most interests me is this change that England goes through, moving from this medieval society to an early modern one. And I know historians kind of argue about where this early modern period actually starts, with some even going back to the Magna Carta and then others going to 1688. But I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that it's this Tudor period with all of the new technologies and just the changes in the breakdown of、uh, the role of the church. And the rise of Parliament that really shows us that we're entering into a, an early modern society. So the 16th century is basically the birth of modern England. We see so much of the early signs of the England that we know now, including the Industrial Revolution. And one of the aspects that most reflects these changes is telling time. I have long been interested in how people kept time during this period and what time meant to people. So I'm going to get a little philosophical in this episode, and、um, you know, thank you for bearing with me and for your patience with me on that. But you know, it's one of these things that you read in passing. For example, I remember reading in a book one time that day. Daylight hours were shorter in the winter than in the summer, and I read things like this, and I wonder how that would have worked for your average tutors. So, in 1485, time was still quite fluid, and the hours changed depending on the season. And by the end of the period, there were pocket watches, which were first introduced in England in 1511, and there would be wall clocks ringing out the hours 24 hours a day in people's homes. Of course, something else that changed during the Tudor period was when the when the days and the new year. Actually began. Up until the 16th century, Europe was operating under the Julian calendar that the Romans began. But as time passed, that wasn't actually in alignment with the sun anymore, and that really mattered because of how you were going to calculate Easter. Because Easter, of course, was the first full moon after like the ver- vernal equinox. It was this whole thing revolving around the the sun and the moons and. Everything like that, and so Easter kept coming potentially earlier and earlier because of the way the calendar was scheduled. So the Pope Leo the Tenth actually asked all the European rulers to send their best astronomers and theologians to Rome so that they could calculate a new calendar year. But for a lot of people, this just didn't seem to be much of a priority. Even Henry, who was still a favorite of the Pope at this time, didn't bother to send anyone. And as it went, the changes actually didn't take place until well after Leo's. Time in 1582, at which point it changed both the solar and the lunar calendars. And to make up for the changes that the new calendar would create, ten days were removed. And in 1582, the fourth of October was followed immediately by the fifteenth. It was like when we spring ahead with daylight savings, only with ten days in between rather than an hour. And to add to the confusion, not every country went with the changes right away. So France did, but England didn't, which meant that it was tough to figure out when a letter was written if it came from France, for example. So still, as interesting as that calendar change is. And I might wind up doing a whole episode on it. Who knows, right? In this episode, I want to talk specifically about clocks and keeping track of the time during the day and the night. So we think of time as this fixed unit of measurement. A minute is a minute is a minute is a minute, and that is largely because we have clocks to measure the time. And this idea that measuring something can actually make it more real—you know, if you actually put a measurement on something, that can create it. Like, what's a foot? A foot is twelve inches. What's twelve inches? Right? It's just this unit that we all kind of agree on, and yet that is what creates. 
what a foot is and what a yard is and, and a mile and a kilometer. So the gist for our purposes is that time was changeable for our Tudor friends. We now have clocks on our wrists, in our pockets, with our cell phones, in the upper right-hand corners of our computer screens, and we think in terms of precise minutes. When you say you're going to start a meeting at 9 a.m., starting at 10 past 9 makes you late, right? But in an age that started with the most accurate clocks still being off by 15 minutes at, in some cases, your 9.15 could be my 8.45 if we were both off by 15 minutes in opposite directions, right? So people often even didn't know what year they were born in. And you see these instances where when people needed to know their birth year exactly, maybe for a legal purpose, uh, for inheritance or something like that, midwives and women who were present at the birth would actually be called to testify as to what year it was. Most people didn't even know what year they were born in, or they would measure the year in terms of the reigning monarch they were born in the third year of the reign of Henry VII or something like that. So it, it was all very, very fluid, very changeable, not very fixed. The day was split into hours, primarily in order to keep track of prayers. So this was from the church. The morning prayer was prime, followed by terse, sext, non-vespers, and compline. And what time of day that was, according to our civil clocks, could change during the seasons because daylight and nighttime at this time were both divided into 12 hours. So let me repeat that again. At this time, you would divide daylight and nighttime into an equal 12 hours. So the 12 hours at night during the summer in England, in England in June, that's about maybe seven hours a night. They would say that that was 12 hours. That would be the same amount of hours measured as daylight in England. Both of them would be 12 hours. So you can see that the nighttime hours in England in summer would be shorter than the daytime hours. So in 2002, Scientific American did a full issue on the history of timekeeping. One of the main takeaways from the articles in that issue is that our conception of time changes as we change the way that we keep track of it. Now most rooms have clocks. We set alarms to wake up. We exercise on machines that keep track of how many minutes we've been walking or running. Our Fitbit, my Fitbit, tells me how many hours I slept. There have been many ways to keep track of time over the years. As early as 1500 BC, people used water clocks. They were in popular use by the time of the Greeks around 325 BC. They would use a bowl with markings on the inside and a hole in the bottom to mark the passage of time. Kind of like a basic hourglass or, you know, an, an egg timer, the kind of thing my mom used to turn over and it had the, the sands of time. Wasn't that a soap opera too? Through the sands of time. Was that as the world turns maybe? I just remember that. <laughs> that picture of the, the uh, hourglass. That's what it's called, the hourglass, right? So that was useful for marking how much time had gone by, but it couldn't tell you what time it was. And for that, you had sundials, which would measure the time of day based on the shadow that the sun cast on the dial. The problem, of course, with that was that the sun cast different light as the angle changes throughout the year. So the shadow cast in January would be very different than that in July. Before clocks became common in England, people used to say that an hour was the time it took to walk three miles in the summer or two miles in the winter. Medieval manuscripts explained how to turn your hand into a basic sundial or even suggestions as how to use local landmarks and the way the sun would shine on them, and the length of their shadows. People would use that to tell time. In addition, in, in the Canterbury Tales, one of the pilgrims figures out the hour by using the shadow of a six-foot-tall man. That was another way that was taught to people. And 
of course, all of these methods also depend on a clear sky in order to be able to tell the time, and it needs to be daylight. So that was something. The clear sky is obviously in short supply in England, especially in the winter. And it's pretty much you can't you can't use any of these methods at night. Historian Jacques Legoff suggests that the mechanical clocks were actually developed in part as a way for merchants to clock the time of their workers in the city. Cities were developing at this time, of course. Now, when you're a farmer, you don't really need to know what time it is. You wake up and you work in the daylight, and then you go to sleep at night. You take breaks along the way to eat and to rest. But if you are employed for someone in a workshop in a city, for example, your boss needs to know how long you've been working. This is when we start to really see the development of the mechanical clock, which relies on weights to move a toothed wheel. The mechanical clock at Salisbury Cathedral dates from 1386. It's often cited as the oldest mechanical clock in the world. But even the mechanical clocks still relied on sundials to sync them up. This then also leads to the distinction between timekeeping devices and time-finding ones. Mechanical clocks are excellent at time keeping, but pretty much useless at time finding, marking the passage of time, but not actually able to figure out the time by the position of the sun. Other large clock towers were built in England in the late 14th century, such as the one at Wells Cathedral, and this is when we also start to see the distinction between church time, which is, of course. The hours in the church when prayers were said, and clock time when people would mark their working day. But as with any new technology, the clock itself received mixed reviews. Some raved about how useful it was to be able to tell the time even at night, while others, like the English writer of a manuscript called Divus at Popper, suggest that while planets do not rule men, neither should the clock. We are already starting to see people fearing that men and women are becoming slaves to time. By the 16th century, we have standard periods of time for a school day. And the measurement of hours begins to be consistent during the summer and winter. During the 16th century, we also begin to see clocks in paintings, usually in portraits of scholarly people, or as some kind of a reminder that time passes and we need to not waste it. This suddenly becomes a really important theme. We see it in Shakespeare in Twelfth Night. Olivia says, "The clock upbraids me with the waste of time." In the 16th century, we start to see clocks also with skulls carved in them. Yet another reminder of how time passed, and we should make the most of every day. It could be argued that clocks, with their constant reminder of our time running up and moving us closer to death, played a small role in the development of humanism around this time too. So most clocks, even in the 15th century, had a town clock. So most towns, even in the 15th century, had a town clock that would strike the hours, as I said. And by the 16th century, they were quite common. Less common were the smaller pocket watches, which required very small springs to work. The gears, and at that point in England, they didn't have the skill set of the goldsmiths that were required to create those springs. Christina Juliet Faraday writes in Tudor Time Machines: Clocks and Watches in English Portraits, circa 1530 to 1630. She says, "Yet the need to import clocks increased their desirability." Linda Levi Peck has shown that luxury consumption emerged in the Tudor and Jacobean periods. Clocks are just one example of the goods imported for the developing consumer market. According to Peck, luxury was morally ambivalent in this period with its association of excess and Catholicism and the evils of social mobility. However, in contrast to other imported items, clocks had the enormous variety of additional associations, allowing them to be interpreted in terms other than decadent and trivial. So they were also very useful. 
useful. So they were this luxury good that was being imported and part of this new rising luxury goods and, and consumer goods market. And they were acceptable, not just because they were luxury and they were desirable, but they were also quite useful. So that would go along with the growing kind of Protestant work ethic, right? And that said, there are some very famous clocks that play a role in English history. For example, there's a golden clock that Henry VIII gave to Anne Boleyn when they were first married. And I link to pictures of it in the show notes at um, englandcast.com. You can get the show notes. It's described by the Royal Collection Trust. It is, quote, a gilt bronze wall hung clock, the striking movement with a single steel hand in a square tabernacle case. The top pierced with foliage and scrolls containing the bell surmounted by a leopard holding a shield with the royal coat of arms and garter. Then there's also the very famous astronomical clock for the decoration of Hampton Court. Henry VIII had this put in around 1540. This is as he's rebuilding the palace after Wolsey's fall. Within the clock, there are three bells. The oldest is from 1478. And the clock is enormously complicated. I have a video of it in the show notes that you can see. There's a YouTube that Historic Royal Palaces put out. It shows the hour of the month, the day of the month, the position of the sun in the elliptic. And interestingly, it shows the sun going around the earth, right? Because this is before the heliocentric solar system became widely accepted. So we show the sun going around the earth, the position of the sun, the 12 signs of the zodiac, the number of days that have elapsed since the beginning of the year, the phases of the moon, and also the hour which it crosses the meridian, which means that it will tell the time of the high tides in London. So because Henry VIII often traveled by barge, by the river, it was useful to know when these high tides were going to be as well. And so you could plan the best time to travel. So you can check out again, englandcast.com for a video showing the astronomical clock at Hampton Court. I think it's also worth inserting here a quote by the historian and philosopher Lewis Mumford. He wrote in his 1934 classic, Techniques and Civilization, that the clock was the key machine of the modern industrial age. He writes, quote, the effect of the mechanical clock is more pervasive and strict. It presides over the day from the hour of rising to the hour of rest. When one thinks of the day as an abstract span on time, one does not go to bed with the chickens on a winter's night. One invests, invents wicks, chimneys, lamps, gaslights, electric lamps, so as to use all the hours belonging to the day. Abstract time became the new medium of existence. Organic functions themselves were regulated by it. One ate not upon feeling hungry, but when prompted by the clock. One slept not when one was tired, but when the clock sanctioned it. So this is this change that we're going through in England during this period. The pocket watch, like I said, came out by 1511. And by the end of the century, you have pretty commonly in wealthy homes, these these imported clocks and pocket watches, clocks you would hang on the wall. We see it starting to feature in portraits more and more as the time as the century goes on. And even at that time, like I said, people were starting to question it and saying that they didn't want to be slaves to time. So of course, by the 1650s, then we have the pendulum clock, and that remains the most precise timekeeping machine for three centuries. In 1983, the Harvard economic historian David Land wrote a book called Revolution in Time, Clocks and the Making of the Modern World, in which he argued that it was the clock that actually led to advanced capitalism. He wrote, the mechanical clock was self-contained, and once orologists learned to drive it by the means of a coiled spring, which happened in the 16th century, rather than a falling weight, it could be miniaturized so as to be portable, whether in the household or on the person. It is the mechanical clock that made possible, for better or for worse, a civilization attentive 
relative to the passage of time, hence to productivity and performance. So I think it's such an interesting thing to think about this change that was going on in England in this period, um, moving from this really sun-centered very uh, organic way of telling time, of telling what time of day it was, to something that was strict, that was rigid, that was according to the hours. And I should also add in here that clocks could be dangerous. In 1513, there was a, a laborer. He was named John Townsend, and he was holding an iron piece of a clock. When it slipped from his hand, it hit five-year-old William Brett in the forehead and the child died the next day. So clocks, they change our perception of time, our perception of the way that that time passes, and they can also be very dangerous. So check out the show notes for this episode, episode 116 at englandcast.com. So I'm going to leave it there for this week. The book recommendation is History of the Hour, Clocks and the Modern Temporal Orders by Gerhardt, Dorn Van Rossum. And I have a link, again, show notes, episode 116 at englandcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line, which is 801-6-TESCO, 801-683-9756, or through Twitter at Tesco, facebook.com slash englandcast. You can join the Tudor History Summit group on Facebook. And remember to check out TudorCon.info to get your TudorCon tickets. I don't want to miss seeing you at TudorCon with 119 of our new best friends. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening, and I will be back again in about two weeks. Blow, northern wind, ascend for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoch aboard in Bauerbrick, at Sully Sam Lee's on sea. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.